You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, I'm glad that this is no April Fool's joke, aren't you? (laughs) He has risen, and we are so thankful, and we rejoice in that today especially. We do that every weekend, amen? Our faith is not futile because of His resurrection, but especially on this weekend annually, we join the church globally in remembering and celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's fitting that we do that, church. It's fitting that we gather together to remember what He did. What He did is recorded for us in every single gospel. In regards to the resurrection specifically, Matthew 28 Mark 16, John 20, Luke 24, all record this important event upon which our faith hinges. In fact, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection is what makes our faith non-feudal. And yet, Jesus does those things because He is those things. I'm going to ask you this morning that you look even deeper than just what Jesus did. I'm not minimizing that or discounting that, but I'll contend that Easter must run deeper than just what Jesus did. In fact, here's where we're going today. I'll just show it to you in one sentence. We'll prove it and we'll say it again. But here's where we're headed today in a simple take-home truth. Celebrating Easter runs deeper than just remembering what Jesus did. It means recognizing who Jesus is, say it with me, the resurrection and the life. And I want to contend for this simple truth from a pre-resurrection encounter Jesus had, though it was still about a resurrection. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 11. Will you take your Bibles and turn there, please, with me, would you? John chapter 11, this event occurs approximately three to four weeks prior to Passion Week. As you know, we've taken you on a journey this year, as we do most years, from Palm Sunday to Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday. This event we're going to read about is about Lazarus's resurrection. It occurs about a month or so prior to Passion Week, so we'll say a month or five weeks before Christ's resurrection. But it's a beautiful kind of foreshadowing of of Jesus' own resurrection. We're going to learn about how that's true in 10 or 11 verses in the middle of this chapter. I'd also remind you about John's Gospel, an interesting D-Y-K, which stands for Did You Know? Unlike the other Gospels, did you know that at least half, if not more, of John's gospel concerns just the last week of Christ's life. That's a lot of material about a very important week, isn't it? Well, here's the event that occurred just before his last and final week. It's the resurrection of Lazarus. And what will it teach us about Christ and his own resurrection? We're going to find out between verses 17 and 27. A little background for you. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were really close friends of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So much so that during his final week, this is where he stayed. He stayed with these friends. You might say it was kind of their lighthouse, their small group. And he would go back to Bethany most nights and reside there with them. They were close friends. And it was this set of friends that got word to Jesus that Lazarus had died. I find it interesting that when Jesus received that news, he intentionally waited two more days to go and see Lazarus. Now, you might not think that's a very good small group. You might think, man, what's up with Jesus on that, right? I mean, we'll find out more in a little bit. Just understand that there is some intention and obvious sovereignty in play as we read this story that's about to unfold. So he does hear of the news. He intentionally waits. The disciples are a little frustrated because they're not only going back to to meet a dead man on purpose, but they're going back to area and territory that's dangerous for their lives. So they're thinking, man, Lazarus is dead. And then, in fact, I think Thomas even says, let's just go and be dead with him. It's all surrounding the story that we pick up in verse 17. Look with me at your Bibles. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany, which is where he came to, It was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So the grieving process is still going on. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. So Jesus did not make it to the house yet. He's probably just somewhere outside the village, and Martha is anxious to meet him. You know, she's always the first to move in this uh, couplet of sisters, isn't she? So she moves to meet Jesus, and she says to him, based on verse 21, of course, Mary's still in the house with the consoling friends. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's speaking here about what he could have done. Follow the theme here. I don't think she's saying this in a sarcastic way, nor do I think she's saying this in somewhat of a relationally punitive way. She's not saying, hey, thanks a lot, Jesus. If you'd have been here, he'd be living. Hello? That's not her tone. I think it's more of a sense of like, I know what you can do. And had you been here, if he was sick, you could have healed him. I think she's just saying this almost in a longing sort of way. Yeah, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. And verse 22, she goes a step further. But even now I know, circle that word no, would you? Verse 22, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So here she really expresses some beautiful Trinitarian doctrine. But she is, let's admit it, distant from it. Because she says, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. But I know that whatever you ask of your father, he'll give it to you. It's kind of like, I'm going to watch from the outside at what God will do for you. After all, you're very close. I mean, you're from the father. She had this certain level of belief in, in God and Jesus. And so she addresses that. You could have done something if you're here, but even now, you can still do something. You can ask your father, because there's perfect relationship, he'll give it to you. The sense being that in the end of that, we'll benefit. It's not wrong, it's not bad, it's just kind of what is. Her mind is thinking about what Jesus could do. Jesus says to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Now, he knew what he was saying between the lines, didn't he? And you know what he was saying because what? You've read the end of the story. Martha's not in your position. She's not read the end of the story yet. And so she's thinking in terms of what Jesus can do, what he will do. 
And so she says, I know, there's that word again, verse 24, circle it again, would you? I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she's thinking future tense. And she's actually giving a very solid doctrinal statement. This was doctrine that was embedded within the Pharisees' belief system. And by the way, we don't think the Pharisees are good characters, correct? But they did hold to some truths that were accurate, such as the resurrection of the dead. It was part of the Judaistic belief system. And though the Pharisees often, and and to their own demise, would make their own traditions equal with the commandments of God, we know that's what Jesus said about them, and though they led the people astray, there was correct doctrine in some of what they were saying. This is one of them. I think here she's saying this is what we believed for years. This is what's been codified, so to speak. It's, it's in the Old Testament. You promised that you would raise up, up again. So yes, I know that he'll rise again. I know this doctrinally, factually. And you can almost kind of sense the, the smile in Jesus' heart can't you like oh martha if you just knew what's about to happen you're thinking end of the age and i'm thinking just a few hours but to this response he does not talk more about what he can do up to this point this is a very doing conversation you could have been here and done something you can still do something if you talk to your father and i know you will do something one day you catch that? It's just a very doing conversation. And then Jesus responds to her with a very being response. Look what he says. Verse 25. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Wow. So, so Martha, I'm not just about doing things. I am something. And in this case, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. The two things she was really in need of for Lazarus right now. Now, let's just pause and examine this phrase for a bit. The first two words especially. When Jesus said, I am, we may not hear that like the Jews heard it. And like Martha would have heard it. Because she would have heard it, I believe, in the same way Abraham heard the voice of God from the burning bush. When Moses was encountered by God in the Old Testament, and he's commanded to go and free the people, be God's spokesman, be Yahweh's spokesman, he says, who should I say is sending me? And here's the answer of the Lord. You tell them, I am that I am. That's the Old Testament name of God. I am Yahweh. So when Martha hears Jesus say, I am, no doubt he finishes it, kind of describes it, qualifies it with the resurrection of life. What do you think Martha hears? Like, whoa, here's his claim to divinity. Here's his acknowledgement. God is speaking to you. And this one who's speaking to you, God in the flesh, I am Specifically, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, this kind of statement is familiar to John. In fact, there are seven I am statements in the book of John. I'll show you a list of them. You might want to snap a picture of this, jot these down. This makes a a really good devotional study throughout the book of John. Incidentally, these seven I am statements are also accompanied with seven signs. 
such as the feeding of the 5,000, or the healing of people, we won't go into all that here, except just notice that this is the fifth of seven I am statements in John, in which Jesus unequivocally says, I am God in the flesh. The one who spoke to Moses, the one who spoke to Abraham, the I am, he is here. So if anyone ever says to you, church, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, that's just false. All right? Jesus, in no uncertain terms, identified himself as God. Notice he says he's the bread of life, the light of the world, he was the door, the good shepherd. All of these are being statements, and they provide the source for the actions that took place. For instance, in feeding the 5,000, Jesus said what you need is more than just food. I can give you that, but I can actually do that because I am the bread of life. Does that make sense? So who he is is actually sourcing what he does. I am the light of the world. I can provide light in darkness, not because I have a flashlight, because I can necessarily show you the way. I am the way. He talks about the good shepherd. He talks about the door of the fold. And for, for decades, possibly centuries, they were used to shepherds who would only prophesy if they had the right amount of money involved. They could be bribed and bought. You remember that from even their series in the Kings. They were false prophets. They were false shepherds. He comes and says, no, I am the good shepherd, and here's how you can know it. I'll give my life. I'm not just pointing to other good shepherds. I am the good shepherd. So in every instance, what God is saying is this through Jesus. He's saying this. The actions that you see me do, they're actually sourced. They're propelled. They're fueled by who I am. God's conduct is always fueled by his character every single time. God does because God is. And it's true in the case of Christ. Jesus did because Jesus is. So it really, to be frank with you, is moved within the story. It shouldn't surprise us that he raised Lazarus in one sense, right? Not because he can do that, but because he is that. And for sure it shouldn't surprise us that he walked out of the tomb himself. Why? Because it wasn't like an item on his to-do list. He wasn't thinking, okay, today's the day i got to get this done. i got to walk out of the tomb and check that off. He is resurrection. He is life. It actually is as... as right and as healthy as it is that we are celebrating and and in one sense we wonder at that yes i agree with all that in one sense we should say well why wouldn't he he is life he is resurrection did we really think death could hold him god does because he is and this is what he's telling martha martha i know you want me to do some things but all that i could do and all that i will do in a few hours it's all Because of who I am. What Jesus is doing is he's moving Martha from information to intimacy. From just knowing some things, doctrinally, creedally, we'll say, assenting mentally to life commitments, to to stances that are exhibited by uh, you know, uh, life actions. This is what he's doing. He's moving her from information to intimacy. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then these next 
two phrases actually describe his claim or his title. Let me walk you through these in this simple verse. He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. His next phrase, I think, describes what he means by the claim in the title resurrection. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In context, he's speaking to Lazarus, or about Lazarus, I should say, right? Lazarus has died, but don't worry, he'll live. I think this is a reference to Christ's power and promise to raise physically dead bodies back to life. That's what resurrection is, correct? Our bodies die, but the promise of life after that to our physical body is what Jesus has promised. Paul echoed this, 1 Thessalonians 4, when he says, The dead in Christ will rise first. So Jesus has promised it. Old Testament has kind of previewed it. Paul echoes it. Jesus here says, This is possible because I am resurrection. I want to press pause here and, and just share a bit of good news by implication. If this morning on this Easter Sunday you're thankful and you celebrate Christ's resurrection but there's a hole in your heart because someone very near to you, someone close to you is not with you physically. It may be a child you had. Maybe even a a little baby. It could be a spouse. Maybe it's a, a young child. We have folks in our church that lost some children when they were you know, in their teen years and early 20s. Maybe it's a parent. But as much as you celebrate Christ's resurrection, there's just, a part in, there's just a part of your heart that's always kind of limping. You miss them, don't you? I want to say to you with full assurance And who Christ is that you will see them and be with them again. If they were in Christ, you will be with them again. The dead in Christ will be raised. And then the Bible says this. You will forever be with the Lord together. Isn't that great? So I admit to you that these few years on earth, for those who've lost someone very close like that, I don't know from experience, but I can imagine they're very difficult. And I suspect that our years are coming when that's going to happen to us in some way. But you know what? This is not the end of the story because Jesus is resurrection. He will raise those who have believed in him physically. They'll receive a new body and you will see them again. Hallelujah for Easter and what it means in that regard. Amen? But he moves to another level next, and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection, so if you believe in me, though you die, you will will live. There will be a new body one day. But then he says this, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, that can sound contradictory, because earlier he says, if you live, excuse me, if you believe and you die. So how can he say that if you believe and yet you die, and then turn around and say, by the way, if you live and believe and you'll never die? What's going on with that, Jesus? I think what he does here is he moves to the spiritual level. And he describes for us the the spiritual sense of life, which never ends. So though our bodies may quit working, though we physically may die, if you're in Christ, if you believe, guess what? In, in, In a very real sense, you actually never die. Incomprehensible in some way, isn't it? This is what he's saying, though. This is the power that Christ has as the resurrection. He'll raise your physical body and as the life. 
He'll give you life that never ends. John often speaks in what we might call uh, two levels of language. For instance, John 3.16. God loved the world, gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have what? Yeah, everlasting or eternal life. So even if you die, there must be this sense that life actually doesn't end. He says later, I think John 10, that He came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So several times John actually speaks at what we call like two levels of language. There is this physical sense and then there's this deeper spiritual sense. And this is exactly what John's recording here in the words of Christ. He's saying, Martha, if you believe, then even if you die, your body will be raised. There'll be physical life later in that sense. But if you are living and believing... In a spiritual sense, you actually will never die. So no wonder we can say with confidence that death is actually just a doorway from this life unto the next life. In fact, let me be this bold with you. If you are in Christ, based on the words of Christ and the teaching of Scripture, spiritually, you will never die. That's amazing. So why can that happen? Because Jesus is what? The resurrection and the life. All of those things that are going to be done, that will occur, all of these actions, they're rooted in the character, the essence of who Jesus is. That's why celebrating Easter is more than just remembering what he did. It's recognizing who he is. And this is what he's doing with Martha. He's moving her from information to intimacy, which is why he ends with this question. Do you believe this? Notice what he did not ask her. He did not ask her to tell him what she knows. (laughs) Okay? She's done that twice, hasn't she? Look at verse 22. Yeah, I know that whatever you ask from God, he'll give to you. Look at verse 24. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus doesn't say, Martha, do you know this too? He didn't want Martha to add one more thing to her knowing list. He wanted to Martha, do you believe, will you trust that I am the source of anything Lazarus or you may need in regards to resurrection and life? Do you believe me? And look at her response. It is not a doing response. This is beautiful. She says, yes, Lord, I, what's the next word? Believe. She says, I believe, and then she gives a complete, uh, confident confession of who Jesus is. Nothing in his answer, nothing in his response is about anything he'll do. Isn't that great? She's moved. I mean, she's on this journey from information to intimacy. She goes, I believe you are the Christ. So the word there is Messiah, meaning that you are the one that we've been waiting for. You've fulfilled every one of God's promises. You're the Son of God. This idea of divinity, deity, and you're coming into the world. Wow. So so she's understanding suddenly, Jesus, you are who you say you are. That's why you will do what you will do. So in this resurrection encounter that occurred about a month before Christ's own resurrection... What was he trying to get Martha to see? 
I am the resurrection. And he would prove that he was that in about a month when he personally would walk out of the grave, walk out of that tomb. In, 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 in short, Martha knew suddenly now that it was all about the who, not just about the what. There was more going on here than just what Jesus could do. There was a who going on, who he was. And so the sign he was about to give, raising Lazarus, was accompanied by the statement he made, I am the resurrection, I am the life, and so I can do this now. God is nudging you and moving all of us in the same manner, from information to intimacy, from the what to the who. That is the journey of the Christian life, is it not? And by the way, this is not hard for you to grasp. All of us are aware that we want to be people about the who. I mean, no one really wants to be in a relationship that's only about the what, you don't want that physically, and we don't want that spiritually. So this should not surprise us. This is really what God is doing with Martha, and I think what he's doing with us. He's always moving us from information to intimacy, from just mental assent to facts to life commitments, from places where it's just words that we know to truths that we believe and stake our life on. In fact, did you know that there are some commentators who believe this may have been the time Martha was born again? They base it on the word believe. It's a future tense word. And in the original language of the New Testament, future tense words would mean an action that occurred either at the moment or in the past and then would have continuous effects. You find the word believe in this tense often. I personally think she was born again earlier. I think this is a moment in her life when she is moving to a deeper walk with God and a greater understanding of who Jesus is. But I can actually see how some would say that this might be the place she's born again. It's mirrored, uh, it, this kind of mirrors Peter's own confession. When he says in Matthew, what is it, 16? When Jesus says, who do men say that I am? He says, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says to him, you would not have known this had my Father not revealed this to you. So there is something quite supernatural happening here. Regardless of this is her moment of conversion or not, it doesn't matter to the, to the fact of the text, and that's this. Jesus is always moving us from information to intimacy, from the what to the who. He's doing the same in your life this morning. Easter Sunday morning, 2018, don't be distracted. He's moving you from information to intimacy. And you are thankful for that because no one wants to be kind of relegated to a what type of relationship. Amen? I mean, you don't want that in your family or with your friends. I mean, think about this from a familiar perspective do you really want to be the wallet and the driver forever that's what happens to parents you know for a few years right you're just the wallet you're the driver you're the menu you're the cook i mean the moms are grinning right now aren't they and kids i know you don't mean this on purpose and neither do you want to be the grass cutter the room cleaner the chore doer I mean, can we just be frank? In families, you don't want to live in the what forever. You want to get to the who. You want to move that way. You especially don't want this in marriage. You don't want to stay in information. I mean, that's what you marry on, you know. 
actually, let me rephrase that. You marry on a lack of information. That's actually what you marry on, okay? <laughs> you do. I mean, let's just call it what it is. You think you know that person, and you don't have a clue. You marry them in about six months or less or more. You're not saying anything, but you're like, man, who did I marry? If you only stayed in the what of marriage, it'd be frustrating. In fact, I would contend it'd be debilitating. It would crush your relationship. You want to move to the who. That's why on your anniversary, you don't review a list of to-do items and say, hey, could you work on those this year? (laughs) Bad advice, right? Right. Maybe in that first one you've done that accidentally, right? Like, hey, man, that was a great meal, and that was... No, you want to move from the what to the who, and as you get to know them, they realize there's certain things I'll never change about them, though I thought I could, (laughs) There are certain things that they're just wired that way and you, get to, and you start appreciating who they are and, and you realize the intimacy of the person, the intimacy of the who is really where the joy of the relationship is. And our walk with God is in the same vein. Many of us are often drawn by what God can do or perhaps what he has done. But God wants to move move you from information, which isn't wrong or bad, but it's the starting place. He wants to move you from there to intimacy. That's what he's doing today. He's nudging you like he nudged Martha, that he is something. That's why he does something. Now, the time I have left, let me just simply make an application and have you respond with me. Because I hope you're asking right now, well, how does he do that? How does that happen? Like, perhaps your appetite's somewhat wet right now. Todd, I, I want to move from information to machine. In fact, when you describe the what, Todd, I wouldn't want to raise my hand right now, but you were describing me. Like, that's kind of where I'm at. I, I agree mentally. I have words. I kind of assent to certain things. But, man, is there a life commitment? Do I believe Jesus is who he said he was regardless, period? I mean, like, I'm there. Like, God, Todd, I'm, how does God grow us like that? It's through a simple word used three times in this passage, and it's the key word of the entire book of John. It's the word believe. God moves us from information to intimacy through belief. Let me explain, and we'll wrap up. Listen very carefully. There are two kinds of belief that take place in every believer's life. There's initial belief, and then there is continual belief. Initial belief is the moment when you're confronted with the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. In six letters, it's called the gospel. And you hear that, and you take your stand on that, 1 Corinthians 15 says. You put your feet on that as the only way to be saved, that Jesus came, lived a perfect holy life, died a sacrificial substitutionary death for you, took your place and was buried and rose again. And in that single event, though it has multiple parts, he paid sin's debt forever. He satisfied God's wrath against your sin. And the Bible says that whoever believes that message, that Jesus is God and he did those things, is born again. That's initial belief. It happens in the life of every Christian at some point. Are you with me? And I believe that 
even those who are saying no to that are confronted with that on a regular basis, that moment of initial belief. So I would like to ask you, has that occurred in your life? Have you at some point, in a concrete way, come in contact with the news about who Christ is and what he's done and said, I believe a once and for all decision about the gospel. That's called initial belief. That's when we're saved. It's when we're born again. From that point forward, though, we don't stop believing who God is. Listen very carefully to me. Because I believe that the Christian life becomes a a series of intersections in which we have to say, do I believe God is who he is and will do what he says at this point? Do I believe God is at this point? Do I believe God is at this point? The Christian walk is really a matter of just simply believing God every time. Initially, it's about your soul and your salvation, yes. But let's say you're moving on and you realize, oh, God calls me to be baptized. He commands me to be baptized. But I don't like getting in front of people. I don't want to get wet in front of them. And it seems like an odd, old-fashioned practice. And why would God ask that? And why? So we reason, or I should say excuse, our way out of obedience. Why? Not because of water. Not because of fear. Because we don't believe God. And you'll be stalled. Listen, church, listen quite intently. You will always be stalled at your last place of unbelief. Some of you wonder why you've never grown past that moment of conversion. I think you're genuinely saved. You keep telling God no about baptism, which is the very first step of obedience. No wonder you're stalled. You're frustrated. You can't figure it out. You know what? Would you just believe that God knows what he's talking about? That he has a meta-narrative in place in regards to bringing his people through water. And though it doesn't save you, it signifies your salvation. It's a public stance of your obedience. And just get baptized. Obey God. Believe him. Amen? That's, That's all. I'm not asking you to figure it out or to understand it. I'm not admitting that you may not be afraid. It may be weird getting wet in front of people. In front, True. Why not just believe that there's something about baptism that God says is actually good for your spiritual growth and do it? The problem is not water. The problem is not fear. The problem is believing God. So let's say, oh, okay, so you get baptized. Then suddenly you see this church around you and you're like, man, I like the fact that I come to a large crowd, sit and listen and go home quick. You don't really know anybody. You're not really in community, which is what God calls us to. Biblical community where there's accountability, sharing, openness, fellowship, shepherding. And you know God's calling you there. In fact, his word commands that we are in community with his body. But you're scared of groups that get too small. You don't feel like you want to be on the spot. And so you have all these preconceived notions. And so we say, you know what, I'm just going to stay going maybe once or twice a month. I'll sit near the back or I'll sit in the front. I'll leave when they do communion. I'll come late when they're already done. Like, I'm going to have all these mechanisms in place. I'm not really connected. The problem is not that you're afraid of people. The problem is not that you're an introvert or an extrovert. The problem is you don't believe God. You don't believe that God actually will utilize his body to deepen your walk. It's a faith issue every time. You're stalled at your last place of unbelief. Let's say you join the church. I don't mean just officially, but by your actions. You're like, man, I'm, I'm getting into a small group. I'm actually getting to know some people. I'm revealing things. I'm confessing, being held accountable. This is good for me. It's hard, but it's good. And you sense God calling you to serve and to give of some of your time, 
to give up some of your resources. Well, no, Todd, you can't do that. You don't know how busy I am. And Todd, you don't know how tight it is. Well, isn't that the essence of belief and trust, that when you do the right thing, even when you're busy and even when it's tight? I mean, what is it if you only give when there's plenty of money? How is that even belief? And how is it trust if you only serve when you got an extra few hours? Isn't the point of believing God to do what's right and what he's calling us to, even when it's difficult? Could somebody just say, we're with you, Todd? Yeah, because we row this boat together. You're always stalled at your last place of unbelief. And so whatever dilemma or crisis you're finding yourself in of continual belief, I would ask you to look in the mirror and and say to yourself, it's not that I'm afraid of this or the water or a crowd or a small group or being found out or getting known or not having enough money or enough time. I just actually don't believe God will be true to who he is at this moment. I know that's hard to hear, but that is the reality of the Christian life. It's always an issue of believing God. Remember the disciples, they came to the tomb? At first they thought, there's no body, is this really true? They run back, they're talking, they're doubting, they're wondering. At some point, ten of them are on board except for one. Who is it? Thomas. It's always a matter of believing God. Do I take this step next? I know what they've said, I know what I've heard for three years. And then when he saw the Lord, he said, I believe. Guys, This Easter, realize God is moving you from information to intimacy. And the acts, the the mechanism by which God does that is belief. Initially and then continually. Now let me say this to you and I'll be wrapping up. Belief isn't what saves us. It's not what keeps us saved. God saves us by His grace and power. He keeps us saved by His grace and power. Then why does belief matter, Todd? Because belief is the avenue. It's the mechanism by which our response is seen to God. When the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith, what does that mean? That our response of trusting God is the mechanism by which we receive God's completed work for us and then we display that. So whether it's initially believing or continually believing, Believing is always the avenue by which we respond to God every single time. And you will always be stalled at your last point of unbelief. That's why I can say to you, Easter Sunday, you're in Martha's shoes and so am I. There are certain things you know and God wants you to say, and God wants you to to come to believing those things. It may be about initially believing. Some of you here may not even be a Christian. They may not be born again. And I'll tell you, for the first time, you're going to say, yes, I believe Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what he said he did. I want to be made right with God through the work of Jesus, and so I respond by believing in Jesus. And you will be born again, saved. That's your initial belief. But there are folks here who have a number of crises, dilemmas, intersections, not just the ones I mentioned. Those are kind of more common ones. It could be one of forgiveness, restoration, Name your dilemma. You're at a point of questioning, do I believe God is who he said he was and will do what he said he would do? And the minute you say, I do, I'll obey. You grow. Did you know that? In fact, believing God 
It's really the attitude and response that fuels spiritual growth and fights against sinful complacency. So this Easter 2018, I want to call every single person here to believing God. Whether it's initially or continually. Not that that's what keeps us saved or even makes us saved. But it is the, it is the biblical consistent response that we give to God to access, to receive what he's done for us. Because the relationship he's after with you is not one just about what he can do. It's about who he is. Amen, church? So this Easter, let's come back to it. What are we celebrating? Oh, we're celebrating something that runs far deeper than just what Jesus did. We're recognizing who he is. The resurrection and the life. Will you pray with me, please? We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons. Thanks for listening.